Hello, friends. This is the Neatarts Friends Church podcast. We are Jesus people, Kingdom of God people, welcoming, yearning, sharing. And we're glad you're connecting here with us. We'd love to connect in person as well. If you're inclined to support this podcast or for more information, just hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. That's neatartsfriends.org. Let's jump into today's sermon. God is love. There is no fear in love. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And we all experience pain. We experience fear. We experience darkness, suffering, tragedies. And so when tragedies strike, or when evil happens, people are left asking, well, where was God? Or how could God allow this? Why wouldn't God stop this? Or is God behind this? It seems wrong and senseless and unfair. And they're left asking, how can God be all-powerful and in control of everything and all-loving at the same time? For an in-depth dive into these questions, I would encourage you to go back and watch our Perspectives on Suffering sermon series. Uh, you can find it on our church webpage, neatartsfriends.org. Today, we are going to remind ourselves of five key concepts, five snapshots from Scripture that can really help us when we encounter tragedies and evil. So, the first one, you can trust the uncontrolling love of God. One reason that the creation account of Genesis 2 is massively important is that it shows God from the very beginning willing the possibility of evil, but never the actuality of evil. God puts the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden as an option, and God says, don't eat from it. And we ask, well, why is it there? Why does God create the possibility of evil? It has been described in this way. So let's do a little thought experiment. Let's say that instead of dating to find a life partner and spouse, Let's say you went to a genetic engineering firm that specializes in creating custom-made human clones. And so you flip through catalog after catalog, and you custom order the perfect life partner for you. Their genetic coding is going to mean that they come out with just the right body and just the right personality and they will like whatever you like, and they will laugh at all of your jokes, and when you feel romantic, they feel romantic, and they are automatically attracted to you, 
They'll be as argumentative as you like, but not a bit more. They want you to be completely happy. They'll automatically give you your perfect blend of togetherness versus autonomy, and they're just perfect for you. Everything in their genetic coding is created to automatically love you in the way that you best receive love. What could be better? The honeymoon is incredible, maybe even the first few years of marriage. But somewhere down the line, something begins to change for you. When they massage your back, it doesn't feel the same. When they say, I love you, it begins to feel empty. And you begin to realize that they really have no choice in the matter. They are a love robot. They are genetically coded to automatically love you. And all of the, quote, love that they give you just begins to feel meaningless. None of their love is real because they aren't capable of real love because they have no choice but to love you. And you begin to wish that they had the option not to put their arm around you so that when they did put their arm around you, you knew that it came from an authentic place of choice. And you begin to wish that they had the option not to kiss you so that their kisses actually meant something and that when they sacrificed their plans for you, that it wasn't because they were programmed to, but because they chose to. You wish that they chose you and you begin to realize that love, real love, can only exist if free choice exists. Now, that, that little thought experiment helps as we look at the uncontrolling love of God. More than anything in the world, God longs for our love. And God can only create a world where love is possible if God creates the possibility for humanity to have free choice, which includes the possibility of humans abusing and misusing their free choice, their freedom, in horrific, awful ways, ways that hurt and harm others. If God stopped humans from exercising their freedom every time that their freedom started to become destructive, it wouldn't really be freedom anyways. And so, it is God's will to give us the choice, the possibility to not put our arm around God, so to speak, to sin, to turn towards evil. It's never God's will that we actually choose to sin or to do evil or to hurt and harm others, but it is God's choice to give us that choice. We don't live in a deterministic universe where all we say is, well, I guess God gets God's way. If we simply say God is all-powerful and God is in control of everything and so anything that happens, it's all just a part of the plan, well, that ends up making God the author of all kinds of tragedies and evil. God becomes the author of disease and abuse and genocide and branches that fall out of trees and kill people and 
all kinds of horrible things. But when you start reading the Bible, you realize pretty quickly the majority of the biblical story is a story of God not getting God's way. And yet, God works with humanity to turn evil into something good. And so the most helpful phrase that I have found to understand this is the uncontrolling love of God. You can trust the uncontrolling love of God. Yes, God is all-powerful, and God chooses to create a world of human freedom, a world where God doesn't control everything, a world where real love is possible. You can trust the uncontrolling love of God. The next idea that is super helpful, God rules with love, not fear. So this brings us to a question that comes from the prologue of the book of Job. Does God have to sign off on every bad event that happens in this universe? Is that what the prologue of the book of Job is portraying? The answer is no. The point of the prologue of the book of Job is not to tell you that every single bad event in your life has God signing off on some kind of a divine wager. The point is that God rules with love, not fear. So, the prologue to the book of Job describes two different times that the divine council is gathered. So God and all the angels are gathered, and an uninvited guest shows up. This uninvited guest is called the accuser or the adversary. And the Bible has a lot of different language, a lot of different names for this evil force or forces. Uh, so the Bible uses the sea, the waters, Rahab, morning star, twisting serpent, Leviathan, the gods, the accuser, Lucifer, Satan, legion, demons, the prince of this world, devil, tempter, enemy, Beelzebub, the principalities and powers, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, the dragon, the evil one. So a lot of different names. In this case, it's accuser or adversary. And two different times, the accuser has the audacity to accuse God of ruling with raw power, manipulation, and fear. The accuser says that the only reason that Job, this character in the story, is so great is because his life is blessed. And if his life fell to pieces, he would curse God to his face. The accuser isn't just saying something about Job, he's making an accusation of God. The accuser is saying that God rules with fear rather than love. He's saying there's really no such thing as free choice or free will. He's saying that God controls humans by blessing them if they please him and cursing them if they offend him. He's saying that holiness is an illusion, that people only obey God because they want protection. And obedience to God is really just a self-serving bargain. It's like working the system. Now, why does God even allow the adversary, the accuser, to stick around 
when he has the audacity to accuse God of ruling with raw power, manipulation, and fear. Why not kick him out? Because that would confirm to the rest of the angels, the rest of the divine council, that the accuser is right, that God rules with raw power and fear. And so, two different times, God engages the accuser's wager. God says, very well then, everything that Job has is in your power, but on the man himself, do not lay a finger. And then very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. Is this showing us that God signs off on every bad thing that happens? No, it's showing us that God is not going to just bend to this accusation. You rule with fear. Now, all of this is happening behind the scenes. Job doesn't know. Only the readers know what's happening behind the scenes. So in the story, Job's life falls apart. Job goes from being on top of the world to the bottom of the world. His kids are all killed in a freak accident caused by a natural disaster. He's told that the fire of God burned up all of his sheep and slaves. Violent marauders stole his other livestock and killed all of his other slaves. He's dealing with trauma and with grief. His body ends up covered in painful sores, running with pus, clogged with dirt, infested with worms. He ends up an outcast in his world, outside the city, at the bottom of society, at the dung hill or the ash heap. So it's at this point that Job thinks all of the evil is coming from the hand of God. And Job says, The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Now, what Job just said there is highly commendable, but it's not accurate. You see, Job doesn't know that God is not behind the whole event. And so the point of the prologue of the book of Job is not to tell you that every single bad event in your life has God signing off on a divine wager, like God saying, okay, yeah, that's okay. The point is that God rules with love, not fear. And that's an important starting place for the tragedies that we encounter when we really don't know what all is behind the events we encounter so that we don't end up giving God the credit for things that God isn't behind, so that we don't end up calling evil good, it's helpful to remember God rules with love, not fear. Which brings us to another helpful reminder. God wills the possibility, not the actuality. The book of Job describes a natural disaster. And because we get this behind-the-scenes view, we get to see that evil is behind this particular natural disaster, this particular event. It's the, the wind that blows the house down and kills all of Job's kids. Now, does this mean that every natural disaster has evil behind it, that it's inherently evil. Let's 
briefly reflect on why that may be too small of a view. So, earthquakes, tectonic shifts. Life on planet Earth would not exist without te tectonic shifts. Without these shifts, we wouldn't have mountains, entire continents would move underwater, volcanoes would disappear, the carbon cycle would disappear, life on planet Earth would unravel and die out. But with tectonic shifts, sometimes parents are left searching through rubble for their children and praying that they haven't been crushed. Water. Water has a density that can quench our thirst and a density that can drown us. Without the weather cycle, life on planet Earth wouldn't exist, but sometimes it results in tornadoes, floods, hurricanes. Fire warms us. We cook with it. We create energy with it. And sometimes it results in horrific stories like the wildfire that we just recently helped rebuild from in Paradise, California. Gravity. Gravity makes all of life possible. It affects the weather patterns, the tides, on and on. And it also makes us saggy and baggy and wrinkly. Jessica Kelly says it beautifully. She says, God wills the possibility, but not the actuality of these events. It, it isn't that God wills the branch to fall on the child or for the child to drown in the swimming pool. But God did will the possibility of life being sustained by seismic activity, gravity, water, fire, weather. And so this means that we don't necessarily view every natural disaster as inherently evil or that God is directly behind it. God wills the possibility but not the actuality. The next helpful idea when you're facing tragedy, when especially when it's senseless and seems so wrong to you, speak what you feel at the deepest level to God. So in the book of Job, for 30-some chapters, Job sits on the ash heap. And Job's friends join Job at the ash heap, and they try to be good friends. But they can't help speaking the established convictions, the established theology of the day. And so they sermonize, they theologize, they wax eloquent, and are full of advice for Job. And all of their advice boils down to one thing, Job, this is your fault. Job, you did something to deserve this. And they actually end up painting the same picture of God that the accuser is painting of God, that God blesses those who obey and curses those who don't. Meanwhile, Job looks at his situation and feels like this is completely unjust. He says, I didn't do anything to deserve this suffering. And so Job puts all of the blame on God. And at the close of the book, God shows up. And God is angry with Job's friends. And God says to them, to the friends, you have not spoken straight. 
you've not spoken rightly or the truth about me, as has my servant Job. Now, it isn't that astonishing that God is upset with Job's friends who speak of God in the same way the accuser does. But it is astonishing that God is praising what Job has said about God. Because Job has said some kind of far out there things. Job has said, You crush me with hurricane force wind. You stalk me like a lion. You tear me limb from limb like a warrior. You hem me in so I cannot escape. You destroy my hope like tearing a tree from its roots. You mock the calamity of the innocent and you cause judges to judge unjustly. You pay no attention to the wounded and the dying. Your hands made me and now you turn and destroy me. You're unjust. You bare your teeth at me. You rush at me like a warrior. You laugh at the death of the innocent. You've turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. You ruthlessly slap me around. You ignore my prayers. When I hoped for good, evil came. When I looked for light, darkness came. Now, how is this straight? How is Job speaking straight? How is he speaking right? How is he speaking the truth about God? The, the Hebrew word kun is the word that we're looking at here. Straight, right, the truth. And it means that Job dared to speak what he felt at the deepest level to God. Saying that Job was candid with God would be an understatement. Saying Job vented to God would be an understatement. Hebrew scholar Samuel Ballantine says, This is the strongest language that Hebrew knows. And it all becomes clear when we look at the difference between Job and his friends. Because that's what God's looking at. Job's friends never addressed any of their doubts or questions or concerns to God. They only addressed them to one another. And meanwhile, God is praising Job because Job aired out all of his doubts, all of his questions, all of his concerns to God. And that is what's important. Why is this so important? When tragedy strikes, when the universe just doesn't make sense, when senseless violence and evil seem to reign, we're invited to do something more than just turn to our friends and voice all of our questions and doubts. We are invited to get raw with God, to put our fist to the sky, not so other people can see it, but saying to God, this is what I feel at the deepest level, to get raw and honest with God. And that's the key. It isn't the accuracy of what we're saying. It's the act of putting our whole heart before God in the midst of our pain. And this is why 40% of the Psalms, the prayer book of Scripture, 40% of those prayers are laments. What's a lament? Theologian Craig Broyles says, 
Lament recognizes the gap between God's promises and human experience, and lament believes that this dissonance should be presented to God for God to resolve. And so, we are given a rich collection of prayers and songs in Scripture expressing all the human emotions, anger, rage, self-depreciation, immobilization, apathy, self-absorption, shame, guilt, flatness. They teach us to speak what we feel at the deepest level to God. The final concept that is helpful when we're facing tragedy and evil. God can use what was intended for evil to accomplish good. And so we're invited to join God in changing the world. So the book of Job begins and ends in almost the exact same way. Job has a family. Job has livestock galore. Job is wealthy and life is good. Which could make us think, well, that's the point. Like, things were bad, but they're going to get better. End of story. Until we look closer at the book of Job. There are two major differences between Job's life before the ash heap and after the ash heap. And those two differences have to do with Job's daughters and Job's slaves. Those are the two differences. So before the ash heap, Job had three daughters. We don't even know their names. We're not told their names. And before the ash heap, Job had a large number of slaves, we are told. So the information at the end of the book is going to be completely reversed. We won't be told a thing about slaves, and we're going to be told some really important stuff about Job's daughters. You see, here's why it's significant. In the ancient Near East, sons received favor and honor and inheritance. But daughters in the ancient Near East, it was a world of patriarchy. They didn't have any personhood because women were property and objects. They were mentioned in the same breath as possessions, homes, oxen, donkeys, slaves. So if a father encountered some kind of financial ruin, and he, maybe he just wanted to buy a new donkey, he could sell his daughter as a slave. The sale of a daughter as a slave was no surprise. In their world, the line between slave and sex slave was blurry at best. It's hard to imagine, but that was the world. That was the culture of the ancient Near East. If a daughter or a slave girl was violated, they had virtually no recourse. Women weren't allowed to testify in court. Let's say a daughter was successfully married off. Husbands could divorce their wives for any reason and kick them to the curb. And so daughters like that ended up living at the ash heap outside of the city, trying to scrape together a living. There was no safety net. They were reduced to prostitution or begging. No matter how wealthy a father was, 
daughters did not inherit any money. They didn't inherit any property. And so they were extremely vulnerable. They had no way to rise above this. And so Job went and lived at the ash heap. And he came face to face with the injustice of all of this. Job saw the world of daughters and orphans and slaves from a different perspective. He saw it all from the inside out rather than looking on from a distance. And Job chapter 24 is an extensive chapter where Job unloads to God about the injustice of all of this, the inheritance system, the dowry system, orphans naked and starving and trying to survive and living at the ash heap, children being sold as slaves. You can go back and read that chapter. The ash heap changed Job. And so after the ash heap experience, when Job's fortunes were restored and Job had three new daughters, Job made sure that the world knew who his daughters were. He made sure the world knew their names, Jemima, Keziah, Karen Hapuk, and Job honored them. They were known and revered in the land. And Job made sure that they received a full inheritance, just like their brothers, which was completely unheard of in the ancient Near East. After the ash heap, we're told that Job had twice as many livestock as before, and the same numbers are used times two, and it goes through all the same list of animals and of course, we're expecting the same number of slaves, and yet there's one thing omitted. Job has twice the number of animals, but it's completely left out. No slaves. That's not an omission like an oops. That is intentional. The ash heap changed Job. And so, all of Job's prayers to God about the injustices and the suffering in the world turned into something more. They turned into action. Job joined God in changing his little corner of the world. Because suffering has a way of doing this to you. You live through something that you never would have expected you never would have imagined. You lived through your own ash heap experience, and now you see suffering from the inside out. You see the ways that people fall through the cracks, and you see it differently. You see the impossible situations that people find themselves in, and how they are misunderstood. Even when they're coping badly, how they are misunderstood. And you can't change it all. You can't fix it all, but you can change it for someone, somehow. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in the heavens. And every time Jesus encountered evil, he revealed himself as the destroyer of evil. 
not the secret designer as e of evil, the destroyer of evil. When Jesus encountered suffering, sickness, death, he didn't make comments alluding to, you know, God's hidden hand behind it all. That's not what he did. He brought healing and love and wholeness. Because Jesus reveals a God who is not the engineer of sin, pain, suffering. Jesus reveals a God who is the redeemer of sin, pain, and suffering. And so, in our own prayers, in our own actions, those become one and the same. You begin to realize that you can do something. Something that will make it a little bit easier for people who find themselves in the same ash heap that you lived through, the same problems that you know so well. You begin to realize that I can be a part of making God's will be done on earth in some way. You can stop contributing to the conditions that create the impossible situations for people in some way. And somehow, in this experience of doing something for others, you begin to realize that your own experience of suffering, your own experience at the ash heap, is somehow being redeemed. That what was intended for evil God is using for good. God can use what was intended for evil to accomplish good. And so you are invited to join God in changing the world. So, a final reflection question or a discussion question if you're watching or listening with others. Which one of these concepts do you think might be the most important for you to remember the next time you encounter suffering, pain, or evil, and why? So they are, just to do a quick review, you can trust the uncontrolling love of God. God rules with love, not fear. God wills the possibility, but not the actuality. You are invited to speak what you feel at the deepest level to God. And finally, God can use what was intended for evil to accomplish good. Join God in changing the world.
Thank you for joining us for a Sunday sermon from Neatart's Friends Church. We hope you'll join us soon for one of our in-person worship gatherings. For more information, hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. God's peace be with you, friends.